you know, for me, it, it, it's already hit home on a, on a personal level. You know, as I had mentioned before, you know, essentially I went overnight from being kind of a chief neurosurgery resident to being an intern. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Today we have yet another one of our coronavirus series episodes. And I'm very fortunate tonight to be joined by Ibrahim Hussein. Ibrahim is a chief resident at Cornell, and he is the third guest we've had from Cornell. You remember Phil Steig, the chairman, was our first. Ted Schwartz was on recently talking about the coronavirus crisis. And Ibrahim has a special situation, and I think uh, we wanted him on to talk about what's happening uh, live. I will tell you that we are recording now on April 11th of 2020. We'll be releasing this episode tomorrow on the 12th because of the cogency of what Ibrahim's going to say. Ibrahim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I thought it'd take me uh, years and years to ever make it to the podcast, but uh, no, 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 we want circumstances. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happened lately and changed in your residency program? Give us like a little summary of what's changed over the past several weeks. Sure, sure. Um, so what I can tell you is that I, I really haven't done anything on the clinical side of things, anything neurosurgical in, in probably over a month. Um, our hospital has essentially turned, except for maybe the exception of two or three units, has turned into a COVID-only hospital. And they've created about 100 additional ICU beds. And these are solely for intubated COVID-positive patients with, with ARDS. And in order to address that, you know, a number, I'm, myself is, and in about two-thirds of my, my other residents, have all been redeployed to these COVID-only ICUs to help manage essentially these patients because there's a shortage of actual physicians who can do critical care, uh, you know, triaging. And so, you know, as I'd mentioned before, you know, essentially I went overnight from being kind of a chief neurosurgery resident to being an intern in one of these COVID-only ICUs. And essentially day-to-day you're managing things that, you know, we haven't, I haven't thought about since intern year or even since medical, you know, since second year physiology in terms of ventilator management, ABG interpretation. Um, a lot of these patients are heavily sedated or paralyzed. So again, you kind of have some experience with that, but you're not examining them. You're not getting neuro checks. And then um, they're all, in, a lot of them are in multi-organ system failure. So you kind of have to catch up pretty quick on critical care management from a medical perspective, things that we really haven't done or thought about in a long time. And so it's certainly been a, a humbling experience, I can tell you from my end. Wow. Now, when you talk about this redeployment, are you getting moved around within the Presbyterian system or uh, to other hospitals around the city? Or are you all still within the mothership? And are they, uh, I don't know, I assume they have to set some residents aside to cover neurosurgical cases, right? Right, right. So the the first round of deployment actually you know, from within our, our residency program, we're sending out residents to NYP Queens. 
Um, mm. if you, if you look at the numbers in New York city, you know, Queens has been really disproportionately impacted. They almost have three times as many cases, almost double the deaths. Um, and so, you know, our, our satellite hospital at Queens did the same thing that we did where they converted essentially the entire hospital into a COVID only hospital with multiple ICUs being opened up. So our first round of deployment, which I was not a part of was to send three of our residents out there to Queens. Um, after that, Cornell Hospital has subsequently converted. It's kind of like an engineering marvel what they've done in a matter of weeks. They've essentially converted the rest of our hospital almost to a COVID ICU. Um, and so they, we have about three residents who are still actually, I think, doing neurosurgery related stuff. We have a, you know, we have a chief, we have a junior still at Cornell. We have another uh, senior over at MSK. Uh, but the rest of us have been purely uh, COVID only. ICU at Cornell Hospital. So, Ibrahim, will you tell us about, you were telling me about the shifts. Tell us a little about what the daily life that you lead now is like. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, essentially what my schedule is that we're doing, it's the typical ICU kind of schedule. You're doing about 12, 12 and a half to 13 hour shifts uh, for pretty much five days a week. And then you got to you know, depending on what rotation you're on, you're getting your 24 to 48 hours off, and then you're switching back and forth between days and nights. The actual minute-to-minute -minute management in terms of the day is that you're, it's all essentially ventilator management, interpreting AVGs, managing sedation, managing pressors, and not making any major moves at any given point in terms of trying to get these people off the ventilator, because we know this is a really slow recovery disease. Um, and it's, I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's been really humbling because you're, you're just doing things that are so out of your wheelhouse, you know, for, for me, I went from being a chief and now my direct senior, for example, with my patients is a, a PGY4 anesthesia resident. Um, and it is the same resident that, you know, just two months ago, I'm getting annoyed because they're taking 15 minutes to put an A-line in and, you know, but these, these are at the end of the day, these guys this is all they do. They do ventilator management and, and pulmonary management. And so you really have to check your ego at the door and realize that, you know, again, from a knowledge based perspective, I really am an intern. And so it's been a really crash course in, in critical care medicine for me. Well, so for, for our listeners who are also in the field like myself and who are looking at possible redeployment in our own systems, uh, can you give us some advice? What, like, what are you reading? What are you doing to brush up on this stuff and be ready for work each day? Right, right. Um, so, you know, initially when, you know, after we had canceled elective cases, there was kind of this lull for about two weeks where, you know, we, we were kind of just setting up Zoom meetings and trying to keep up conferences and, and reading papers you know, amongst our group. Um, but when it became obvious that redeployment was on the horizon, we had a lot of our, our ICU, you know, our neuro ICU fellows, for example, a lot of the med you know, MICU attendings offered to give us kind of crash courses in uh, vent management. And so I found that to be very, very useful. And the interesting thing is that, again, and I'm by, by no means any expert, but you, you have to understand that the, the COVID ARDS management is actually unique to this disease. You know, so for example, if these patients have, they're not oxygenating that well, for example, that you, you're better off increasing the PEEP rather than the FiO2. And because there's a you know difference in the alveoli uh, uh, ability to absorb oxygen and 
there are certain things, and as other people have mentioned on the on these podcasts, that you're flipping these patients prone for sometimes 13 hours a day. And so there's very unique things that are are relevant to COVID ARDS management that aren't relevant to you know your regular run-of-the-mill ICU patient. And so I think having these lectures from these ICU attendings for me was very, very helpful and just kind of gave you a quick crash course. But a lot of it, I'll be honest with you, you you're just learning on the fly. You know, a lot of it, you, I always, I have, I'm fortunate that I have a lot of good help around me. I have anesthesia fellows and critical care fellows around me at, at, at all times. So, um, but you, you kind of learn it all on the fly, but I would, I'd say at least ventilator management and specifically COVID related pulmonary uh, ventilator management lectures, which I think are on the internet everywhere actually uh, have been really helpful for me. So Abraham, you, you were telling me that you've converted the operating theater, the operating rooms into essentially ICU rooms, correct? Correct. Yeah. Now, I, I thought, you know, going into this step, probably one of the biggest choke points is going to be the shortage of respiratory therapists or RTs. Tell me, tell me what it looks like in there. Is it you sitting in one OR or two ORs? And are there nurses? Are there RTs? Are there x-ray techs? Or, is, you know, who's actually doing and what are you actually doing, I guess, physically right. for the 12 hours? Right. So, and what we've done here is that a number of nurses obviously have been redeployed. Nurses who are normally doing kind of chemotherapy infusions are now kind of in an ICU setting um, with us. We ran out of respiratory therapists, I think, within two weeks of this. We didn't have that many to begin with. You know, they're, they're few and far between. And what they've done now in my particular unit is that they've actually recruited CRNAs to be the respiratory therapists. Hmm. So each patient or each room has a nurse, has a, a CRNA, which essentially is a, a respiratory therapist, and then a resident, for example, like me, uh, assigned to them. Um, the nurses, I mean, you really have to have a lot of respect for the, the nurses. They're the ones who are really going in and out of the room. You know, for me, I can sit there and say, increase the rate of 12, you know, but it's them, you know, they're the ones who are going in and out of the room, making these minor adjustments, um, really exposing themselves to a far different degree than, than us. Um, so they're kind of doing the minute to minute management. My role is to really manage the numbers for me lines, you know, again, we're, we're doing a bunch of lines. We have a dedicated line team, but they're stretched so thin. And I, I, at this, that's like the one thing I feel like I can actually contribute. Um, so a lot of it is I've been doing lines. Um, and then other than that, it's really just backing up the nurse and the CRNA. Now you're talking about, you know, people going in and out of these rooms. You're talking about staffing and the allocation of human resources. I think just at the end of March, I don't remember the exact date, but right at the end of March is when we talked to Dr. Schwartz and he kind of painted a picture for us for how things were looking on the ground there, I, I suppose, from the attending perspective. So with, with this talk about now with you in these impromptu units, nurses going in and out of the rooms more frequently than you. How are your supplies? Are, are you, you know, are the healthcare workers still safe? Do you have enough protective equipment? Right, right. Um, I can tell you from, from my perspective at, at my hospital, there's absolutely no shortage of PPE. There's no shortage of ventilators now that they've converted uh, our, you know, they're essentially using all of our anesthesia machines. Um, so from, from my perspective, there's really no concern on that front. The interesting thing that I learned once I got in here was that, again, a lot of these patients initially were being sent, you know, were being admitted with mild symptoms. But then once the surge happened and, you know, ER doctors started turning away patients with mild symptoms, 
those who did bounce back came back already in multi-organ system failure. And I guess, you know, somewhat, if you, again, just from my own reading, you know, understanding how the coronavirus attacks certain ACE receptors, which are most prevalent in the lungs and kidneys, what we found is that not only are these patients coming back at pulmonary failure, but a lot of them have concomitant renal failure. And so it was interesting because even though we have enough PPE, we have enough ventilators, there started becoming a concern that we were actually going to start maxing out our ability to have dialysis machines or CVVHD machines. Um, and so that became a concern, you know, kind of looking at another level of this, uh, that that may become a rate limiting step. You know, we haven't gotten there yet, but then that's something that, again, you don't really, you know, when you hear about all the lung problems these patients are having, um, to understand now that they're having, you know, other, other issues that may be a rate limiting step in terms of supplies. Um, but we haven't gotten there yet. So, you know, again, from my perspective, I feel, you know, obviously, you know, I feel, you know, you're going in there and you're going to be exposed and these patients have, you know, you know, they're all positive. So, you know, you just try to be as good as you can with your PPE, but there's been no shortage or, or concern on that end from my, from, from my perspective. Now, Ibrahim, you know, as a, as a chief resident in neurosurgery of seven, six and a half years in, um, you, like all of us are very acquainted with death and uh, morbidity and complications and things like that. And, and we're pretty hardened general to that, right? Um, how is this different? In other words, you know, we're used to seeing people come in with trauma or maybe have a complication in surgery and, and a horrible outcome or something like that. How, how is this different to you emotionally? You know, for me, you know, that's, it's a good question. I, I haven't had a, a patient at least yet, you know, obviously knock on wood, um, that's been, that's died or or I haven't had to have any of those discussions with uh, families as of yet. I think the thing that makes this a lot different, again, and you're right, we're, you know, we're so used to having end-of-life discussions and dealing with, with death, even in tragic situations, young people, um, like we're seeing even now. There are a couple of things that make it a little bit different, and I think you, know, kind of, you kind of take it, take it home with you, that um, number one, that a lot of these patients who, who die, they don't have family around. You know, we're not letting any visitors in. It was a brief period where our hospital wasn't even allowing spouses to come in for when they were giving birth. Uh, that's been reversed now. But, you know, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of that. So a lot of these patients are, you know, they're essentially dying with no family around. And they, they you know, they're intubated and sedated for sometimes a couple of weeks. So they probably didn't even get to have those kind of last goodbye conversations. Um, and then. You know, the harder, the other aspect of it is that, you know, especially when, I, again, I don't think we're going to run into this situation at my particular hospital, but it's something that's always, it's already been come up, it's, it's been discussed, is looking at the ethical standpoint of it from, you know, if you're an institution that has a limited number of ventilators, you know, and you have a, you know, you have a 28-year-old intubated, uh, you know, young man or you have let's say a 50 year old woman with you know four kids and you have to kind of at a certain point you have to make an ethical decision if you're running out of resources how you're going to allocate those ventilators or the support system and who deserves it more and you know that's something that again has become a real discussion it hasn't you know again we're not going to reach that point i think at my hospital but that's certainly something you have to think about um i think as, as this thing maybe spreads to smaller areas or rural communities um, that's something that's going to be have to really be considered and, and weighed in on other people. Wow. You know, the 
the way that this is impacting not just the patients but their families, I think, is uh, being felt in many cities around the country. I know here in Chicago, while we haven't been hit as hard as you have, of course, um, all of our hospitals are on lockdown. And so patients who are admitted, whether or not they have any symptoms or have even been considered or tested for COVID, their families can't come in and see them. And, and as Dr. Wang said, neurosurgical patients are very sick and have, um, you know, in, in some cases, incredibly poor outcomes. And even for those patients, they've been separated from their families in, in what can be the last days of their life. So kind of turning that back to, to think about you and your co-residents and the workers there, you're obviously working different hours, though we're all used to long hours. You're working with a different degree of you know, personal risk. How are your families handling it? And how are you handling going home from this kind of hospital environment each day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you know, for me, it, it, it's already hit home on a, on a personal level. You know, I had um, my, my wife's cousin got admitted to a hospital out in Long Island with his father around the same time from COVID-related mm-hmm. problems. His father eventually got intubated and died. And then he was in the hospital, you know, recovering from this. He didn't get intubated, but, you know, he had to learn that his dad died, you know, in a, a unit right next door to him um, while he's in the hospital and separated from his his wife and their young daughter. And so, you know, that obviously that hits home on a, a you know, on a personal level. For me, and you, you know, you, I think you nailed it, JP, that, you know, for us, you know, like doc, Dr. Wang says, you know, we're the alphas, right? We're the top of the food chain. So for us, you know, the, the work hours and and, you know, putting ourselves in, you know, I think in a, a situation where we know we're going to be exposed or around sick people, you know, for me, it wasn't a big deal. I, I don't I don't care about the hours or, or whatever. You can deal with that. You know, you know, you're going to be around uh, sick patients. I'm OK with that, putting myself at that risk. The harder part for me, especially, was, that you know, I have two young kids at home. You know, for me, I don't mind exposing myself, but. You know, exposing my family is just unacceptable. Um, you know, the, the, the collateral damage that could happen from that, even though it's obviously very, very low risk, you know, that's something I wasn't willing to accept. Um, I've been very fortunate, again, through my hospital, even though all non-essential businesses in New York City have been shut down, there are a select number of hotels that are partnered with, with the New York City Department of Health and with our hospital to actually open their doors just for healthcare workers who aren't able to go home. So I've been actually staying in a hotel in Times Square, about two miles away from 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 Cornell for the mm-hmm. past two weeks. And at this point, you know, when they when I asked them what the end of my rotation is going to be, they told me indefinite. So I think best case scenario is that I'm probably going to be at this hotel for probably six weeks. And it's difficult because I know that I can't I'm not going to be able to physically like see my kids or even though I'm, when I'm at work, they're right across the street. Uh, but at least it gives me some comfort knowing that I'm not going to be exposing them to the same, you know, viral load or whatever I'm being exposed to and bringing it home. Um, and so, I, you know, again, I think I'm in a fortunate situation from that end, but you can't really, I think even as tough as we are as neurosurgeons, you know, the, um, you know, there's certainly a psychological toll of, of kind of being locked up in a hotel room by yourself for six weeks and not being able to see your family and your kids is, uh, you know, it's certainly, it's kind of already biting away at me within a couple of weeks. And so uh, that's something that's been a little bit difficult, but, you know, again, I, I think I'm in a fortunate situation, at least that I, I don't have to risk them being exposed. Well, good. Um, you know, 
somewhat relevantly and, and unfortunately apropos to Dr. Stieg's episode, not just thinking about your families and how they're handling all of this and, and the risk to them, you know, you and your co-residents who have been redeployed, you know, as you talked about, you're a senior, you're, you're top of your pyramid, and now you're a junior in a world that you don't fully understand that you haven't been trained for. How are you and your residents keeping your spirits up and, and keeping your confidence, your, your positive self-image up? Are you just diving in and, and keeping busy or, you know, ha- has there been any, you know, lowered moods among your co-residents? Yeah, no, I think, um, listen, I, again, I, I have, I've been very, very fortunate, I think, with a lot of things. And, you know, I, my, my co-residents are, um, they're all my best friends. You know, I've, my wife used to get mad at me because I'd, I'd go work all day and then want to hang out with them, you know, go out for drinks at night. She's like, well, you, you just were with these guys for 12 hours. Why do you want to go see them again? Just having a good group of residents, I think, at baseline has been extraordinarily helpful. You know, again, being away from your family is one thing. But, you know, a lot of us, we still have kind of, we try to get together and have Zoom meetings. Um, our program director, Mike Caplet, you know, every Friday evening has been kind of having our group uh, Zoom meetings for all the residents. We just kind of get on and air stuff out that we're thinking about or concerned about. And, you know, I have a great support system from them. And, you know, we're on group texts and everything together just to keep each other laughing. Um, so I think you definitely, you need a strong support system, I think, to get through all of this psychologically. And so that's something that, you know, I've been, I've been lucky to have uh, my other guys helping me out with that. Now, Ibrahim, um, I've heard the war analogies. We heard the um, Surgeon General saying this is like our Pearl Harbor. And if that's the case, you guys are the tip of the spear for, for North America, at least. You know, a lot of our listeners in America and around the world here in Miami, we're looking to you for direction. And we've heard a lot of discussion about who's most susceptible to the complications after they've been infected. Um, I personally am getting ready for this by by engaging in a very intense sort of physical fitness routine to get ready, even though all the gyms are closed. Is there anything that you've observed or you could tell our listeners, people coming into maybe a, a pandemic in their local area, what should they be doing to get ready potentially to, to, to sit in your role? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, you're, you're right. You know, there's certain, obviously, and I'm, I'm not the expert on this, you know, but you know, the, what we're seeing, at least from, you know, what you see on the news and what you're kind of reading online in reports are, are certainly panning out, you know, the diabetics, the hypertension, you know, hypertension patients, anybody with baseline cardiopulmonary uh, comorbidities, they're obviously going to be at high risk. The interesting thing that, that I've seen, and I think there are actually just recently studies that are coming out on this now, is when you read the reports about the young patients, you know, the people who are like 20, 30 years old, no medical history, even though they make up a minority of them, what I've even, you know, just in the handful of patients anecdotally that I've seen is that even though these guys are young and have no other medical problems, you're starting to recognize from a social history perspective that vaping or smoking, um, even if, you know, even if it's just marijuana, you know, that they're, there's going to be, I think, increasing retrospective data that looks back and shows that these people are at much higher risk of developing complications related to COVID. You know, again, the majority of young people are probably asymptomatic carriers, but the ones who decompensate to the point where they require respiratory support, you know, I think it'll be interesting to really look back and see, and even just anecdotally, the ones that I've seen, 
they have a history of vaping, which is something that's kind of been a whole other, you know, kind of epidemic that's going to be addressed, I guess, over, you know, the coming years. Um, but that's something I think that should be really important and, and, you know, cognizant about, especially to the younger people who are, uh, you know, who, who are out there and think that they're not going to be, uh, uh, you know, succumb to this. Wow. Well, Ib, you know, we, we want to respect your time. You're coming off a long shift, but, you know, as, as I keep having the opportunity to say on the podcast, uh, fortunately, you know, I, I had such a wonderful month there with you and all of your co-residents operating with you in Dr. Stieg's room, Dr. Fu's room, um, you know, Gary, who we knew in Miami from his sub-I, uh, Joey, and your new uh, intern, uh, Andrew Garten, who is one of my best friends from the interview. Right. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys are all hanging in there and keeping your spirits up and staying safe. Um, so all the best. Keep up the good work, please, for everyone in New York and, and being a shining example for us around the country. Yeah, Ibrahim, um, you know, we're looking forward to you joining us here for fellowship starting in, in July 1st. And hopefully either we won't be going through what you're going through now or we will pass it because we don't want you to come down here just to be a, an intern <laughs> and when you should be you're doing conflict. Maybe the surgery in Miami when I get down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't want that. We want you to be doing complex and minimally invasive spine surgery for sure. Yeah. But uh, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing very honestly what's going on. It is it's getting to that point, I think, before getting blunted. Where, where there's almost, and even I myself was like, well, maybe it's not that bad, but I'm glad you were able to share with us honestly to our audience what's actually happening. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I, I JP, Dr. Wang, you know, I, yeah, JP, we definitely miss you over here. And uh, I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on. You know, it's certainly real. You know, when you're being here, I can tell you in New York, you, you, you know, I certainly feel the weight every day as, as millions of others do. And so it's real, you know, but, um, you know, we're working through it and I, I appreciate you guys uh, uh, having me on. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.